0: Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is how we find our inspirations in different events, in different people. For instance, many black liberation activists and organizers have found their inspiration in the life and work of Asada Shakur, a former rank-and-file member of the New York Black Panther Party and its militant offshoot, the Black Liberation Army. As today's guest explains, Asada Shakur published her autobiography as a fugitive in Cuba under the protection of Fidel Castro with a phalanx of federal, state, and local U.S. law enforcement in pursuit of her after a successful escape from the Clinton Correctional Facility for Women in New Jersey eight years before the FBI placed a million-dollar bounty for her captured dead or alive, a figure which the state of New Jersey later doubled. So why would so many today find inspiration in Asada, who was convicted in the first-degree murder of state trooper Werner Forster during a shootout on the New Jersey Turnpike in 1973? And how does the history of the Black Panther Party of the 1960s and 1970s inform today's activists who are engaged in the struggle for black lives? We will find out in a few minutes when we have the return of historian Donna Murch, author of Asada Taught Me state violence, racial capitalism, and the movement for black lives. Donna is an associate professor of history at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and sits on the executive council of the Rutgers American Association of University Professors and the American Federation of Teachers. Donna is also author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, Follow Donna on Twitter at merchnick, M-U-R-C-H-N-I-K. Find out more about Donna at donnamerch.net. This is Donna's third appearance on This Is Hell. She was on most recently way back in April of 2019, and I didn't think it had been that long that it had been since before the pandemic, so I had to come back over here to the office and look it up to make sure that was correct. But back in April of 19, uh, 2019, uh, she was on to discuss her Boston Review article, how Race Made the Opioid Crisis, which was a fascinating article and an engaging conversation. You can find that interview with Donna and another one that we had with her back in, I believe, 2016 by searching on her last name, Merch, M-U-R-C-H, at thisishell.com. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, what's new by you?
1: Hi Chuck, still a little shaken from that storm we had last night.
0: That was really intense, and I thought, so right outside my back window is the field house for Warren Park, and they have a civil defense warning system there, Mm. and uh, that's the loudest I've ever heard that system, and I thought for sure I was going to end up in my basement. How about you?
1: It's 80 miles per hour winds I saw at O'Hare. Yeah, I was coming home, I was riding back from Clark and Devon, and it was clear, and people were playing basketball. By the end of my, like, mile trip back home it was completely black and really scary the sirens were going
0: did you get soaked no i was okay and uh, what kind of where do you live in your building? Like what floor We're are you? We're on
1: the third floor. I asked um, my wife if she wanted to come down to the basement because that's where I keep my bike, and she said she didn't want to leave the cats. So <laughs> <laughs> we took a
0: risk there. Why is everybody on this show, in past or present, so concerned about the safety of their cats?
1: They're huge nerds. <laughs> there
0: you go. Thank you for answering that question for me. I really appreciate that, Dan. So what's new by me is uh, last night I had a dream. And in that dream, like most dreams, a lot of stuff happened that I don't remember. But toward the end of that dream, I was told by a large group of people, including many friends that I recognize but have not seen in a very long time, I was told that the dream was foreshadowing what was going to happen to me in real life. Again, I have no idea what that foreshadowing was, but I told this group of people that they were wrong. In fact, I told them that The dream was not foreshadowing what would be happening to me in the near future, and that what it could be is whatever the opposite of foreshadowing is. So I asked the group, what is the opposite of foreshadowing? What is the opposite of a warning or indication of a future event? The opposite of which would mean a warning of a past event, I guess, which doesn't make any sense, but whatever, it was a dream. However, all the people I asked in the dream responded in unison, that the opposite of foreshadowing is imagatore, which they spelled, again, in unison, I-M-A-G-A-T-O-R-E. And to the best of my knowledge, that's not a word in any human language, although it gets kind of close to the Italian word for imagination, which is kind of what a dream is. So I guess that makes sense. But more important than whatever the hell that was all about, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And can you please share with us a couple of answers from our listeners?
1: be happy to. This week's question from hell is, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? And we've had a healthy response. Sweet. Uh, Warren L. says, the usual thought crimes, what the president doesn't know, gives him plausible deniability. I like that. Laddie S. says, very tight lips. (laughs) Aaron D. says, I put chocolate in the TSA peanut butter. Then the TSA put peanut butter in my chocolate. Oh,
0: my God.
1: (laughs) And Pete V. says, I could tell you but I would have to tongue you first. Oh, that's
0: disgusting, that's disgusting. We'll have more of your answers following our conversation with Donna. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is How swag you want, the This Is How t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is How guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can me- email it to us at chuck@thisishell.com But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing... This week's winner, as we always do, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Again, Dan will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Donna on state violence, racial capitalism, and the movement for black lives. Email us, message us via uh, Facebook, tweet at us on Twitter with your guest and topic suggestions, or j- just tell us anything you'd like to us to share on the show and we'll likely read it on air if we do have your guest suggestion on the show we will personally thank you during our conversation with your suggested guest via facebook we got a a message from sarah m no relation who writes chuck you deal with enough hell bringing, bringing us all the terrible news from around the world You certainly don't need to be experiencing this kind of physical hell you are dealing with on top of it. I'm so sorry you're going through your current health problems. I truly hope you can get down to the bottom of what's going on and recover sooner. Then you hope you are a gem. This is how it's so important, and I can't thank you enough for all your hard work on this show and shedding so much light on so many sad but important issues. We need a healthy Chuck, but most importantly, you deserve a healthy you first and foremost. I'm wishing you all the good energy and healing powers, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks to everyone who has reached out with their wonderful words of support over the last few months since I was hospitalized back in early March. I have one more medical procedure to go through before I have what is hopefully the last surgery I will need to address my chronic digestive issue, and as I have reported earlier on this week's show, that means I'll have to miss a little time early next month. It will only be a few days rather than a few months of shows where I'll not be able to be here. Luckily, all the producers did a fantastic job, including Dan Hill, during my uh, 10 weeks off, and I'm confident they'll be doing so again. Again, thanks, Sarah. It's truly appreciated. We also got another guest suggestion from Tom G., who always sends excellent interview ideas. Tom uh, got in touch with us via Facebook as well, writing, Dear Chuck, I hope you are feeling more and more well each day. Surely taking the time to rest and recuperate from the impact of invasive medical procedures is allowing your body to regroup and heal itself. I am looking forward to hearing your dulcet tones and to see your dulcet self again will do all our heart's good help." just hasn't been the same without you calling it out in real time. FYI, I just found out that there is a book about my twin, the often on-again communist Kerala. We are twins because Kerala, India was formally established on my my birthday, November 1st, 1956. I cannot help but wonder if the author of the book, T.M. Thomas Isaac, would make for a good interview on your show. The book is called Kerala, Another Possible World, By T.M. Thomas Isaac. Uh, According to the publisher's website, it says there is no alternative has been the slogan of the neoliberals ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The counter slogan has been another world is possible. Here is the story of the ongoing struggles to build another world in Kerala, India. The neoliberal imperative is to maximize, maximize growth at any cost. Kerala has embarked upon an alternative to optimize growth within redistribution, environmental sustainability, gender and social justice, and concerns of progressive culture. Krala has pursued alternative policies of protecting the public sector, health and education with highly positive outcomes. These outcomes in turn have strengthened the social security and care systems and drastically reduced hunger and poverty. Democratic decentralization has provided the framework for implementing such a program with the participation of the people I hope this finds you well Tom see I told you Tom Tom always finds exceptional guest and topic suggestions thanks Tom and I actually ran into Tom last week downstairs at the bar carries lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood and I hope all of you can join us downstairs for both the carries lounge anniversary party on Saturday July 23rd that's the 50th anniversary of Carrier's Lounge happening on Saturday, July 23rd, and the This Is Hell anniversary party, our 26th anniversary party, happening during the final weekend of summer on Saturday, September 17th. Coming up, Donna Murch on the historic struggle for black lives. Dan will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, What crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? What crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell. Asada taught me is a slogan that you may have seen on a t-shirt worn by those who support today's struggle for black lives. But why is a former rank-and-file member of the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army member, uh, who has been living in exile in you know, Cuba for nearly a half a century, an inspiration to so many? Here to help us understand and returning to This Is how is historian Donna Murch, author of Assata Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. And Donna, I have to start out by apologizing. I had no idea. It had been over three years since you've been on the show. We cannot let that happen again.
2: Thanks, Chuck. That's really kind of you. I also didn't realize that it had been that long. I think we're all experiencing pandemic time. So, you know, two years, three years, it's all been a lot of it, this terrible, strange wrinkle in time. So I confess that I I, I didn't realize that either. Before I start talking about Asada, I just wanted to say, I'm so glad that you're feeling better and that you're nearing the end of your surgeries. And... Yeah just also sending you lots and lots of support and love and wishing for a quick recovery.
0: Thank you so much and I also appreciate the Ursula K Le Guin reference to wrinkle in time. That's exactly what we've been going through. Uh and uh, yeah, it's just really weird. It's like it's everything before the pandemic just doesn't seem Real anymore. Uh, but let, you start off by writing, Asada Taught Me, the title of this collection of essays, which is what the book is a collection of essays from, I believe, 2012 to 2016. I believe. Uh, it has a double meaning. Uh, the first references contemporary history of mobilization against racial violence. The second speaks to my own trajectory, that is, your trajectory as a Black Panther historian. Having studied the Black Panthers, and I know this is a big question, but what do you believe is misunderstood about the group by their detractors and separately by their supporters? What is most, what is most uh, misunderstood by both those who support and those who do not support the Black Panthers?
2: Um, yeah, thank you for that question. I'll start first just with Asada because I think that she is become, um, for our contemporary moment, the, most, the best known and the most remembered of the Panthers. And this is really striking because she was not one of the leaders in the Panther Party. She was not from Oakland and the core infrastructure and leadership in the Central Committee was all people located in the San Francisco Bay Area. Even Fred Hampton, who many people think was the brightest light of the party, never made it onto the Central Committee before he was killed. So the fact that she's from New York that she was a rank-and-file party member, and obviously that she's a woman. This represents, I think, a transformation in how the party is remembered, understood, and what its legacy is in terms of subsequent... As much about Asada Shakur, she is the frame and the lens for thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the conditions of racial capitalism and the origins of mass incarceration in the early 1970s. So this is in many ways a book that is about state violence and extractive practices since the black power and black radical movement in the 60s and 70s. And Asada and Asada taught me as a lens for how to fight these forces is kind of where the book ends. In terms of the Black Panther Party, um, unfortunately, because I teach undergraduates, that gives me a really good sense of how it's remembered by younger people. And, you know, Rutgers is a public university in New Jersey. I think it's a comparatively liberal and left university. And yet, when I teach the history of the Panthers, almost everyone tells me that they know almost nothing about the party except what they saw in Forrest Gump. And that is probably the biggest channel that most most ordinary undergraduates that pass through Rutgers. And I'd say to some extent, cross-racially. I think that black students tend to be more sympathetic to the Panthers, but there's been a real absence of transmission of our history, which is true across the board in the United States. But I think in particular, because of the counter revolution and the attempt to really suppress and misrepresent the history of the 1960s, I see this as an active political project. The Panthers have been misunderstood. One of the things that many white students raise is that they thought of the Panthers as being a militant hate group, an anti-white group. And this is to me the biggest irony because if you go look at FBI records, one of the things that they were most concerned about with the party was its ability to build interracial cross-racial coalitions. And a lot of effort was put into ways to undermine the party by trying to misrepresent its relationships with what the party called white mother country radicals. So I'd say the single biggest misconception is that the party was essentially uh, kind of a black nationalist party that was inherently anti-white, with the most most akin to the Nation of Islam. I think that's the biggest one. The second one which is, I think these discourses about the Panthers, they exist in different realms, the, the biggest one in the university. And sadly, this is really shared by, it's more common than not, is the idea that the Panthers were simply theater, that they were a revolutionary theater, that they put on leather jackets and bravado and police patrols, essentially the first six months of the party's history in which they organized police patrols to police the police that this was the core history of the party. Um, So thinking about them just as a kind of epiphenomena, revolutionary theater, but that never gauged in the real work of organizing.
0: So that lack of a history of understanding of the history of the Black Panther Party, how do you think that affects the way in which people understand the struggle for Black lives today, especially within the establishment media. Without that historical context, what do we miss in understanding today's struggle for black lives? And is today's struggle for black lives, those who are activists and organizers within it, are they aware of that history?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that the first thing is that the the Panthers were a Marxist organization and that really does matter. It is one of the major reasons they were targeted by the FBI. And the combination of them being an all-Black organization that sought active coalition with radical organizations, including the Peace and Freedom Party, which was a California party that was an electoral party, an electoral third party to fight, the, to try to stop the, the Vietnam War. Um, and also, of course, with the weather underground, the Brown Berets, the uh, Iwarkun, the Red Guard Party. So they had this very active vision, essentially of a radical rainbow coalition 20 years before Jesse Jackson, that really centered towards number one, organizing the most economically marginal. And that piece is really important. You know, the Panthers are part of some of the shift that occurs in the post-war left in which they were looking for different constituencies to organize in the left and college campuses were seen as important. And their focus was really people experiencing economic precarity uh, who were thought of as the most marginalized. So that vision of, of, I would call it a revisionist Marxism that was moving away from traditional working class organizing And this matters because it's also the origin of the party. It's in Northern California with a recent migrant population that hadn't gone through this process of developing permanent jobs. So I think the Panthers literally, they reflect their origins and they're deeply centered in first-generation migrants out of the South who become politicized at community colleges at a time when higher education is free and everyone in California had a right to a college education um, uh, if they had high school equivalency or a high school diploma. So I start with that as historical background because the Marxist piece of the party is crucial to its history. And I think that in the movement for Black Lives, there is a real inspiration that's drawn from the party because of its sense of militance and its iconography of militants I think that we live in a post-1989 reality in which capitalism has been ascendant for three decades. And it's very, very different than the Cold War context in which the Panthers came of age, in which they're articulating an anti-colonial vision that looks to Cuba and to Ho Chi Minh and Vietnam, to China under Mao and even to North Korea. So it's very much, uh, it's born out of the conditions that helped create it. So I think the Panthers remain important for inspiring a younger generation of activists. They often look at the Panthers through ASADA, through a queer feminist lens. And this is part of the reason that I think that ASADA has been chosen. I think it remains complex in this moment to figure out how we make anti-capitalist struggle core to organizing. So I think the Movement for Black Lives is an important channel that connects to the Panthers and connects to the imagery of the Panthers. I think it's a larger question right now, how we knit together mov- movements that are able to really I have to be honest to embrace Marxism and real anti-capitalist struggle. Some of the challenges of the Movement for Black Lives um, reflects this.
0: You also write that Asada's participation in the armed wing of the black liberation struggle through a succession of trials, torture, and incarceration made her the antithesis of a politics of conciliation and incorporation. For me, you writing here, and others who followed, Asada opened a lens to a recent history of self defense, black internationalism, and left pan Africanism that defied the strictures of a narrowly defined domestic push for African American inclusion and upward mobility. Why is inclusion and upward mobility, often the hallmarks of liberal or centrist policies on central uh, on civil rights, why is that not enough? How do inclusion and upward mobility fall short when it comes to the struggle for black liberation?
2: Well, I think that if you look at the post-civil rights period, so let's say the period after the passage of the voting rights in 1965, this is a period of what people talk about as the black power movement in which a lot of the struggle moved away from legal segregation and towards what we call the more intractable problems of really racial capitalism, the disparities in wealth, the disparities in ex- education, the, the, the ways in which racism and racial, not only racial ideology, but practices based on racial ideology have created enormous economic fault lines. And so the idea that inclusion will be the solution to the problems of the majority of black people has not proven to be true. The civil rights movement was effective in opening up a generation of of black middle-class people, much of whose upward mobility was rooted in state employment. To this day, black workers have a higher percentage of unionization than white workers. Why is that? A lot of our concentration is actually in state employment and it's well known that state employment was less discriminatory than the private sector. However, in terms of living standards and the effects of mass incarceration, the mass criminalization of black people, it's arguable that for the overwhelming working class and cash poor majority, that economic conditions have gotten worse. So I think that this is an issue that faces most anti-colonial struggles, which is you have the creation of a middle class and a leadership class who have gains by the opening up of new opportunities. And there's no question that that happened with the civil rights movement but the deeper economic fault lines, racial capitalism, this economic disparity based on a a legacy and ongoing practices of institutional racism was not abolished. The second thing is that, and I was really struck by this when I was researching the Panthers in the 90s and early 2000s in which I was at UC Berkeley and the discussion about precarity was very much in vogue then. And I was struck by how the Panthers had a lens for thinking about what do you do in society when a very small percentage of the population are part of labor unions? Very much like what we're facing today. How do you organize the dispossessed? And the Panthers had important ideas about how to do that. So I think their commitment to Marxism, to, active and radical coalition based on also, and I haven't talked about this, but I think it's crucial, especially when you think of Asada, who of course ends up in Cuba after she, with the help of Marilyn Buck and other radicals, is broken out of a federal maximum security prison and becomes a fugitive. But where does she take refuge? She takes refuge in Cuba. And a core part of Panther ideology was anti imperialist they were opposed to anti-communist foreign policy. They saw that as a central point of unity. And that element of anti-imperialism was developed and central to the political zeitgeist in ways that I think have been lost really over the last decades for many reasons. Um, but that's the piece of the Panthers that I would say, their willingness to figure out how to organize people under new conditions. And it was predictive. You see a glimpse of it in the 1960s, but in terms of deindustrialization, downward mobility, the loss of manufacturing employment, the traditional ways that we had thought of working class, the Panthers were predictive of this.
0: So, uh, Assad had a commitment to armed struggle. Um, And do you think that that is what has kept her life uh, from being erased from the establishment media? And why did Asada's commitment to armed struggle not just disenchant you or not disenchant those who are supporters of Asada Shakur to this day?
2: Well, I think that it's precisely because Asada, I talked about all the ways that she's different from the Panther leadership but she remained part of a faction within the party that continued to support armed struggle and became part of the Black Liberation Army. This is a history that is very little known and is also very difficult to research because of the level and scale of repression. So this is the, really the people who became the focus of all of the Panthers and other members of radical movements like the republic of new africa faced enormous state repression revolutionary action movement included so it's not unique to the panthers or the black liberation army but in terms of the big prosecutions the panther 21 in new york the uh prosecution of the of the alleged brink's robbery in the early 80s and of course the arrest of Asada Shakur and Sundiata Akoli in New Jersey in the early 70s. These became many of the celebrated political prisoners of later years. And I'm happy to say that after the hard work of Sophia Elijah and other movement lawyers and solidarity campaigns, Sundiata Akoli has just been released from prison over the last week, last several weeks. Um, In terms of understanding armed struggle, this is complex. I think that Asada's image of militants is part of what's drawn people to her. There is enormous anger about the failed politics of inclusion, and there is the idea of a revolutionary who became, um, who was incarcerated, and this is, a big piece of how, how do most people know what they know about Asada? And the main way they know this is through reading her autobiography that was published in Cuba in 1987. And so much of that autobiography is not about the Panthers. It is about her experience of incarceration and her multiple trials and what it meant to be pregnant in prison. And it is a really powerful autobiography about many things about politi- coming to political consciousness to being educated in a community college in New York, to joining the movement. So it's an arc of her own politicization, but then it is a story about the enormous state repression that she faced. And I think for me in the 1980s, I always saw ASADA as the alternative to the incorporation of the mainstream civil rights movement. And I think for a subsequent generation um, in the movement for black lives, there is a similar kind of motivation, although I think the primary lens that Asada is seen through is through a queer feminist lens. So the image of Asada as a revolutionary, of a vision of revolutionary womanhood that embraces armed struggle and at the same time is incarcerated and becomes a fugitive is an image of liberation.
0: You mentioned the protests following the murder uh, in... Uh... I'm sorry, uh, the murder in Minneapolis a few years ago of George. Why am I forgetting his name? I'm totally blanking on his last name. That's horrible. Um, and oh, George Floyd. George, George Floyd. Why am I forgetting that? I don't know how that just happened. Um, so you write the sheer size. That's embarrassing. Uh, you write the sheer size and scale of uprisings for black lives that uh, ensued from May 26, 2020 uh, through the end of the summer in 2020, dwarfed any previous Uh, period of social unrest in American history. Now, back in 2003, the worldwide protests against the pending war in Iraq, its invasion and occupation, that set records for the most people engaged in global protests, with an estimated more than 15 million people marching worldwide. However, as you point out, by the first week in July, between 15 and 26 million Americans alone took to the streets in mass demonstrations throughout the country with a little less than half of all uh, counties in the United States taking part. But the anti-war protests did not stop the war, which continued the forever war that we still find ourselves in today. Do you believe the uprisings for black lives will have any more of an impact than those anti-war protests had?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I think that we, you and I are roughly the same age because that's absolutely how I experienced it. I was at UC Berkeley in the lead up to the Iraq war. And so I was in the Bay area. I was at the center of those protests and they were powerful. Um, But I do think the defeat of those protests set the stage actually for some of the conditions that we're facing today we all know that the Iraq war and the, our longest war in history in Afghanistan and all the subsequent wars that continue to go on in Libya, in, in the Middle East, in Sudan, in Somalia, the United States is involved in active, really they are wars. They're not reported on in that way, but the, the enormous expansion into the Middle East in terms of the expansion of army bases that happened not only under George W. Bush, but also under Barack Obama. So we have experienced over the last 20 years these dis- decisive defeats in really the attempt to reign in the war machine. And I think you need that history almost as a prehistory to understanding the parameters of struggle right now. So it is that defeat that I think has led to the loss of a of a large anti-imperial left, because I do think it's a, it's a retreat that is just born out of enormous disappointment and a sense that the things that we can fight over domestic, not international, we don't feel we have the power to challenge the war machine. And so I think those Iraq war protests were important. In terms of the movement for Black lives, I think that it has a a challenge, which I think was met with the creation of much more infrastructure, which was to start with a formation, I mean, there are important differences. The Black Lives Matter hashtag and idea came out of social media that did not exist in the same way in 2003. So the kind of digital revolution with the smartphones and the apps and the communication infrastructure, uh, it's a different, it's a hashtag politics didn't exist 20 years before. So in that way, it's different. It the the people that coined the term Black Lives Matter came out of not-for-profits. All three were professional organizers. So it can be traced to a group of people who start with a hashtag, but then become important to the convening of many different organizations throughout the country who were also understood through the lens of mass, what would I call it, mass uprisings. So you have the people that helped to create the hashtag and create the lens and use Black Lives Matter as a new way to respond to really the reign of almost 50 years of law and order. So the use of crime, the arguments that were used by Reagan, and also, unfortunately, by the Democratic Party itself, which I talk about a lot in the book, which is bipartisan law and order politics that crime was the biggest problem in the United States and that it is only through an active suppression of crime which led to mass criminalization of the population that this is really the only way to govern. So I would never downplay by talking about this in terms of Black Lives Matter, they took police killings and used them as a way to turn back that lens, you know, invert the gaze on the state itself on police and to say what has been talked about as you know the maintenance of law and order and the creation of safe communities has actually meant an utter destruction and dimin- diminution of black life since that hashtag you had the movement for black lives formed several years later and as i mentioned there's an enormous diversity in the different groups that were brought together i think that there has always been a tension between those mass uprisings that took place in Charlotte, and of course, famously in Ferguson. My family is from St. Louis, so that was always you know meaningful to me, both personally and politically. Um, and the question was how to bring together all these different forces. And there have been challenges in organizational form. And the end of my book really does talk about lessons from the Panther Party about organizational form. Number one, how do you balance grassroots at the local level with national leadership. How do you make national leadership accountable to local groups and organizations? And this was absolutely true in the Panther Party too. There are many wonderful things about the Panther Party, but I think it's also important that we learned critical lessons from the past. And one of the biggest was the absence of intra party democracy and not having representatives who shared both in governance and in the budget of the organization. So I think that that would be the second one. The third one is, I think, you know, we live in a post-Cold War world in which the Panthers were a Marxist party that was structured along Leninist principles. This has, in many ways been discredited in the popular imagination uh, for professional paid organizers. And I think it remains a question about how do you have an organized movement that incorporates the people, the formerly incarcerated, the economically vulnerable, how do you have a national movement in which the organizational structures really help to build those at the local level and have that in dialogue with the national leadership? So in that sense, I think it's very different than an anti-war protest, which was meant to stop a war but it's different than trying to build local organizations on the ground to address a range of different issues of state violence and racial
0: inequality. And to me, it also reflects the difficulties in having uh, the whole process of a direct democracy and what that could look like. You are uh, We are speaking with historian Donna Murch, author of Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism and the movement for black lives you write that initially black lives matter was only thought of as a hashtag but as the corporate media increasingly reported all forms of black protest as black lives matter the line between the many different regional and ideological tendencies That you were just discussing, became blurred. Participants varied from the tight-knit structure of BYP 100 to the mass spontaneous demonstrations in Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, Charlotte, North Carolina, Oakland, California, and many other locales. While the mainstream press often reported these many and varied actions as Black Lives Matter protests, in truth, they represented distinct tendencies with different social and geographical profiles. So in your opinion, why did the media lump them all together as one movement under one banner? And what did this mislead the public into thinking for or imagining about the more all-encompassing Black Lives Movement?
2: Yeah, you well, know, I think unfortunately, this is also one of the dynamics of racism, that the search for a lens to try to understand Black people that so often corporate media does this, it lumps people in groups together. It looks for the representative spokesperson, which it designates, and then reports in ways that are not deeply immersive in communities. And I think that reflects, honestly, the racist hiring practices of the mainstream media, the lack of diversities in newsrooms, the institutional racist practices of the media. And I'll say as a professor at a public university, I've been struck with this my whole life, that universities did go through in many ways forced desegregation. You had the fight over black studies, you had affirmative action, both in terms of student admissions, graduate school, and the professoriate. And as a result, at least in the humanities, it's not true in all the professional programs and in the sciences, But in the humanities, you did develop a significant Black and Latinx professoriate. That did not happen in the media. So I think number one is literally how hiring practices shape reporting practices. And the United States is a deeply segregated country. And so I think that part of it is that. It's literally like you don't have people connected to community that can write about Black people in nuanced ways and recognize differences. I'd say that's at the top. Politically, I think also there, was not, there wasn't a level of sophistication. And I think it was just easier to use this as an umbrella term. You know, as a professor, reporters often reach out to me and they do a lot of their stories just through interviews with people. And I think we need good, immersive journalism rooted in research that combines not only interviews and kind of, you know, on the ground, parachute in reportage, but real research. So I I do feel like the media has just fallen, fallen down on this. But initially, before the name Black Lives Matter became the dominant um, label for this protest. Some of us were calling it the anti state sanctioned violence movement, which is really unwieldy and it doesn't lend itself, I guess, to easy coverage. But I think that that matters because it wasn't seen all through the three founders. You know, I think the choice of Black Lives Matter is a way to understand this. There are things about it that are useful, but it also, Ferguson where you had young people on the ground who are being confronted with tanks and CS gas and decide to fight back. That is very different than the infrastructure created by the the hashtag founders who came to Ferguson, took selfies and linked themselves to this local protest. So I think that again it would have required, you know, deeper research and a real commitment to trying to talk about grassroots organizing on the ground. For our union, I'm used to be chair of the media committee and I spent a lot of time trying to place articles in the New York Times about union activism and it's very hard. So I guess that's a long answer, but I have a lot of frustration with the mainstream media and how it has covered all different kinds of protest and organizing. So I think that that's part of the reason that it happened. It was also to some extent, the strategy of the founders of the Black Lives Matter hashtag to use this as the primary lens for how all all these different forms of protest have happened. But I think that they were, they always had their differences. And I think right now, over the past year, some of those differences are on display.
0: You were also right about Florida's Dream Defenders, one of the many groups that is involved in the struggle for Black Lives. And you write that, like the Vision for Black Lives mission, to which they contributed. The Dream Defenders website announces a set of beliefs and demands hearkening back to the Black Panther Party's 10-point program. It outlines an explicitly anti-capitalist, feminist program that embraces all forms of community, self-defense, and opposition to imperialism. The vision for Black Lives states, we believe that our liberation necessitates the destruction of the political and economic systems of capitalism and imperialism, as well as patriarchy. We believe in people over profits, we believe that nonviolent resistance is the only Morally and practically sound method open to oppressed people in their struggle for freedom and are fundamentally committed in nonviolence as our means of struggle against a violent oppressor. We want an immediate end to the police state murder of black people other people of color and uh, other oppressed peoples in the united states the immediate release of two and a half million prisoners of the united states war on the poor and trials by juries of our peers we want an immediate end to all wars of aggression domestic and abroad we want a democracy that is fair and protects the right to vote for all we want free Fully funded public education for all that uh, uh, teaches us uh, our uh, true history and our role in present-day society. We want community control of land, uh, bread, housing, education, justice, peace, and technology. We want more. We deserve more. We will organize, train, act, and win. And just to stay on your annoyance with the media. Yet whenever the media reports on political movements, they insist that they, and I remember this, you know, even with Occupy or whatever movement you want to point out, that they first speak, they insist that they first speak to the leader of the movement. In this case, there is no single leader within the Black Lives Struggle. Secondly, they insist on a list of demands. And here the vision for Black Lives is spelled out. So why for many people listening right now is this Possibly the first time the demands have been ever been listed, that they've ever heard them. What explains the media's sudden disinterest in reporting on the kinds of demands they insist upon from protest movements? Why is there a sudden disinterest in demands when it comes to the vision for black lives?
2: Yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing up the dream defenders. One of the things that I do in the book is that I lay out just the history of the hashtag because it has to be included and then in the history of the political network. And then I move from there to talk about particular groups. And so the three groups that I cover in the most detail are the Dream Defenders, um, BYP 100, and then the original Black Lives Matter um, political network. But I wanted to move away from the national leadership and to think about how this concept was realized and expressed. And one of the interesting things about the Dream Defenders is that it's a good example of the regional differences because they were organizing in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin by Oscar Zimmerman. This, is the, this was the spark that actually was the acquittal of Zimmerman that created the conditions for the convening of what became BYP-100. And that really started to create that density of social media response that helped to generate the Black Lives Matter hashtag. So it does, Trayvon Martin, there are many other young people killed by police or by vigilantes who essentially see themselves as self-deputized police. So Dream Defenders was right at the center of that, but in speaking to regional differences, in many ways it reflected the racial diversity in communities of South Florida and of Florida in general where you have large numbers of people from the Caribbean, you have a heavy Latinx population, you have um, a very broad and fungible idea of what these populations of color look like. So they did do cross-racial organizing, uh, but under the, under the lens always of the importance of black leadership. And in that way, they have a lot of similarity, I think, ideologically with the Panthers. They were also very committed and devout socialists. And at a certain point in their history, they repudiated social media because they decided that this whole model where you protest, you're covered by the corporate media, then in turn, the foundations and the philanthropic world comes to you and starts to fund your initiatives. They stepped back from that because they saw that as a denaturing of true protest. So I think that I was interested in them because of the kind of depth depth of commitment to anti-racism, anti-racism. anti-blackness, and then linking that explicitly to an anti-capitalist program. In terms of, again, the media coverage, you know, there has been some good reporting. I live in Philadelphia, and there were some people that did do good reporting, but it's a combination of things. It's the corporate media. It's hiring practices. It's also the depth of decline, even the newspapers themselves. We have enormous shrinking of the budgets of People doing local reporting. And so I don't, I think a lot of news channels and newspapers don't have the infrastructure to do proper research and reporting. So, in addition to all the problematic hiring practices and the, we all know about the political lenses of the media in the United States, which allows, I think, a very narrow representation of what is actually happening in the US. So, I think that that's part of it. So I think we're up against a lot in terms of having substantive transmission of the politics that are happening on the ground. One of the things that the Panthers did, which is crucial, and it's one of the reasons I would point to them, their organizing tradition, is that they printed their own newspaper and sold it all over the United States and all over the world, which meant that they weren't dependent on the media to get their message across. And the, I don't think that social media is sufficient. I think we need more sustained forms of generation of content so that movements can represent themselves rather than being reliant on how they're covered in the mainstream media or through just the necessarily truncated nature of social media. Social media can be effective for or organizing, but I don't think it has taken the place Politically and substantive ways of what it meant to have a newspaper.
0: You well on our show we've been speaking recently about the so-called not-for-profit industrial complex, and in relation to what is happening with uh, activism for the unhoused. And you write that perhaps most significantly, Florida's Dream Defenders artic- articulated a forceful critique. Of the not for profit fundraising model that supported the majority of social justice groups in the U.S. Although they used the tax filing status of a 501c3 as a practical matter, many members felt that the NGOization of the Dream Defenders posed uh, particular obstacles for building a true grassroots movement that was accountable to its base rather than philanthropic foundations or the mainstream media. So will the revolution be NGOized, if you will? Would, will it be nonprofit or by doing either is the revolution or revolutionary movement already undermined before it even gets off the ground?
2: You know, it's, um, it's hard. I think that this is the primary form of organization for our generation. Well, not for you and my generation, but for the political moment that we're in. States. It just is. 501c3s are the core infrastructure. In the 1960s, it was member based organizations that were often funded through dues. And today, it is not for profits. And, you know, not for profits vary enormously in what they are like um, their size, their capacity, and their functions. But we live in a different organizing environment. And I'm not an expert on them, but I think that there are just some real challenges because what's come along with a not-for-profit model is the professionalization of organizing in which organizers are often college educated and paid. and I'm not trying to impugn you know that people shouldn't be supported for the work they do. You know, I'm a chapter president in the labor union, and we have an amazing staff and many of us especially the graduate students seek forms of compensation for the organizing they do so i'm not saying that we should all be volunteers but the consequence of this has been that in some ways the organizers are often quite separate from the communities that they are serving or representing and the dream defenders attempted to deal with this contradiction so you know they they wanted to think about ways to return to grassroots organizing forms of the past So, 501c3s are not going anywhere. This is our dominant mode of organization of the left in the United States. And I think, you know, it's that thing about historical memory that often the way we understand politics is based on earlier decades. But, you know, this is the dominant form. And so I think we have to figure out how to deal with it and how to make sure that we have accountability and the building of organizers who come from the communities that they're representing. And I think that that is a genuine challenge right now. So I think there are problems with the not-for-profit model but it is dominant and it's not going anywhere fast. What I really appreciate about the Dream Defenders is that they thought about how to have an alternative and they are doing grassroots organizing in Florida right now. So they've moved away from high profile media coverage I guess you can hear some of the like sadness in my voice, but I think we have a real problem with what's happened with movements. And it's not only true for the movement of Black Lives from friends I have that were involved in Occupy. I've also been told that this was an issue in Standing Rock that I had a wonderful friend who unfortunately has passed on, Dedan Kamati. And he was a Black Panther in Southern California, but originally came from DC and Howard. And he talked about how, with his own activism in the 1990s, you know many people continue to be politically active after the party had disbanded, that several times he was approached by funders and often the possibility of starting his own um, essentially his own not-for-profit, his own NGO. And he always refused the money because he felt that what it did is that you immediately became beholden to funders, and your most important goal, Became how to keep your organization funded. But we have also seen the celebritization of movements in which people have taken their participation and leadership and then translated it essentially into a kind of commercial identity. And I do think we have to find ways to talk about that that are not impugning or attacking people personally, but I think it's a larger, it's a larger structural issue. Um, I'm a professor and I see the limitations and problems in the university as well, but I'm a little bit discouraged because I think that there are multiple headwinds that face movements. Um, One is just the economic difficulty of survival in the United States. You know, It's very hard for people to engage in things when they don't have enough money. And if you look at the protests of the 1960s, this was a much more fluent period in our history than now. And it did not have the same sense of manufactured scarcity that we have now. So there's that. But then there's also the kinds of ways that I think capitalism has deepened and expanded and the the real, I don't, the metastasization of celebrity culture, which social media has made possible. And I do think it's damaged movements. The problems of charismatic leadership in movements that are mobilizers, you know, who grab the microphone and they become representative of the movement that has always existed. But social media has has given in many ways, all of us a microphone in which to brand and to capitalize essentially on our own visibility. And that's a challenge and that's a challenge across the board. You know, it's not the Movement for Black Lives own problem, it's a larger problem. And we're seeing a real disorganization of movements. It's very hard for them to sustain themselves with all these different headlines.
0: One of the things I do not like to do on this show, and we only have a few minutes left, is chase headlines. But you do write about January 6th, and we are in the midst of these hearings right now. And you write that America faces a growing movement of what poet Amiri Baraka called... Racial fascism rooted in the particulars of our history of African slavery and settler colonialism, while also drawing new inertia from the global march of right-wing authoritarianism. The takeoff of the Tea Party in 2011, fed by virulent racial anger over Barack Obama's election, combined with four years of Donald Trump's presidency, has uh, culminated in a historically unprecedented sacking of the United States Capitol by thousands of Trump loyalists attempting to stop the certification of the electoral college vote for president elect Joseph Biden on January 6, 2021. This frightening attack hinged on a paradoxical spectacle in which a white mob declared themselves patriots and protectors of the Republic while using violence to stop the core processes of democracy. So what is missed in the current hearings if white supremacy and nationalism are never considered and what would be the impact on the hearings if white supremacy and white nationalism did become an issue?
2: It's a really good question. I wish I had a better answer. I think that I'll just give a really kind of me as political person, not me as expert. Um, I think that we are reaching a crossroads in the United States where the takeover of right-wing authoritarianism is absolutely possible. I used to think it was 30%. Now I think it's probably more likely than not. And the exact form that this will take, uh, we're uncertain about, but the, the quiet and stealth elimination of the protections and enforcement mechanisms in the Voting Rights Act that, you know, a dozen and a half states or more have passed laws that say that state legislatures have the powers to determine the outcome of the vote, the presidential vote, at the state level, that we face a kind of challenge to our democracy. And the United States has a very limited history of democracy, let's just say that. It's only since 1965 that all of the population have the right to vote. And then of course, we see the takeoff of felon disfranchisement. But limited democracy though it is, we have had one and it's really in danger. And I think we have a two party system in which the democratic party and the leadership of the democratic party are very hesitant to explicitly talk about white nationalism and white power. And I think that It's if you don't have more evidence than what we have seen in January 6th, I watched the first first day of the hearings and I actually just almost had a panic attack watching it because I do think it's a dress rehearsal for a larger counter-revolutionary movement that's here and is going to grow stronger. So we need to shift away from an electoral calculus that focuses on centrist swing voters, read, read white, and attempts to mobilize broader portions of the population. Ultimately, I think that we're never going to repair our democracy without really thinking about a change in the rules of the game, whether that's the electoral college or figuring out how to have ranked choice voting in more parts of the United States. Our limitations on democracy have proved really deathly combined with this right-wing authoritarian, white, white nationalist, white power movement that's sweeping the U.S. And it has to be called out. It has to be named. But I think the biggest reason it's not happening has to do with the Democratic Party's electoral calculus, in which white voters count more than others, sadly.
0: So what role does neoliberalism play within that discussion? Uh, neoliberalism, as you write, is, you know, it seems inherently uh, not only just fascist, but it seems inherently racist by uh, taking away social services for those who need them and by prioritizing profits over people. Is the uh, Was the uprising on, uh, was the rioting on January 6th, was that in support of continued neoliberalism? Does neoliberalism allow for white supremacy and white nationalism?
2: Well, I think that, you know, white nationalism predates neoliberalism. It goes to the very origins and settlement of the United States and even predates the period that we would think of as really the industrialization in the 19th century. So it is a very, very large force in the origins of the United States. Um, I guess to give a short answer, I would say that the downward mobility of the white population is crucial for understanding the kinds of counter-revolutionary forces that we're facing. However, if you look at who went to January 6th, who was there? And I was, you know, watching all this very carefully at the time. And I was like, no this is not the lens that Rachel Maddow is providing of racial deplorables of you know essentially white riffraff because this was initially how January 6 was being reported on and i was looking at it and i was like mm, no these are people that have people of some means the investigations found that 90% of the people that were there weren't part of organized white supremacist organizations most of them were simply rank and file republicans many of them were business owners we had the son of a supreme court judge from brooklyn a Brooklyn, you know a, a new york um court judge who was the person who was pictured in the bearskins and the um the police flap jacket so a lot of these people are what we would call certainly middle class or upper middle class elites so we have a cross racial white nationalist movement that has been powered by, I do think, the fury and anger created by white downward mobility. This is a very dangerous revanchist force, but it is important to note that it's a cross-class racial phenomena, and it is also gendered. So I think the best antidote I see to this is social democracy. I'm a leftist, so I wanna see something more than just social democracy. But I do think redistributive programs that take the essentials in the United States, which are education, crucial for your children's future mobility, housing, and healthcare. These are the three things that are the most unaffordable in the United States. And we're watching the elimination, really, of the post war middle class. And I think there has been downward mobility in the Black and Latinx population as well. But, you know, white people hold. After the 2008 financial crisis, your average white family has 13 times the wealth of your average black family. However, their relative racial wealth has increased, but within white communities they're experiencing downward mobility. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think it kind of hedges it, but our our practices of destroying public commons, all the things that are important for people to have lives that are predictable with the hope that their children, maybe not even now that their children will be upwardly mobile, but that's been core to the promise to the white population of the United States, but that their children even can maintain the same standard of living. For the overwhelming majority of us, that doesn't exist anymore. And that is a big part of the force of why we are in such danger of right wing authoritarian takeover. This is very much an elite led movement. And the buy in for it, I think, has a lot to do with economic downward mobility.
0: First of all, I just want to say that uh, when I remember now from before the pandemic, when we've had you on the show. this. I don't know if this has ever happened with any other guest we've ever had on the show. I forget that I'm an interviewer. I forget that I'm supposed to be getting the next question ready. I i forget that I'm supposed to be looking at my notes because I'm so engaged with what you're saying. And its it's just always... Incredible having you on the show. We're not going to make the mistake of waiting another three years to have you on the show. We have been speaking with historian Donna Merch, author of Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. Unfortunately, I have one last question for you, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response, and you know that this is a question from hell because I'm quoting the New York Post. So the New York Post... <laughs> has reported that Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice uh, Cullors said that when $90 million in white guilt money came pouring into the organization's coffers after the murder of George Floyd, the group had no infrastructure in place to handle the flood of cash, and now the mistakes made are being weaponized against her. The Post added that the former executive director of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation also addressed allegations that she had personally benefited from the donations by purchasing homes for herself, Including a six million dollars property in Los Angeles, which included a seven bedroom mansion, a pool, a sound stage, and a garden. colors is also quoted saying, "This was an investment. It's not my personal real estate. It's not Patrice Colors' uh, real estate. It's the organization's real estate. The minute we shared the information with the public, the right wing media would do what they always do, and they always did because the right-wing media doesn't have any sense or a care for people's security or safety. So how concerned are you about the situation regarding money and the Black Lives Matter movement?
2: Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, in some ways I feel like I've laid it out throughout my interview. I think that it has always been an issue in organizations I'll say movement organizations, because those are the ones I'm most familiar with. It was true also in the Panther Party. How you deal with the relationship between leadership, who are, who have the, the voice uh, that the media goes to and become mobilizers, and this would include Martin Luther King. You know, Martin Luther King was a really important mobilizer, but he was not doing that hard work of organizing behind the scenes. It was Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and largely a female-led organized organizing, doing that quiet work. So I think that this split between leadership and rank and file has unfortunately plagued every movement. It was true in the civil rights movement. It's certainly true in the Black Panther Party in ways that In my book, I talk about those kinds of lessons. By talking about the history that I know, it's also my way of thinking of a usable past where we learn not only from triumphs, but also from challenges. So I do think that the right wing is seized on this and it's very, very ugly. And of course, they've been attacking the Black Lives Matter movement throughout its genesis in really vicious ways that are connected to the kind of right-wing authoritarianism and long, long, long history of white supremacy, so that's not new. But I do think that we need to have conversations about how to create organizations in which we hold up the grassroots and in a top-down organizing model in which organizations and political formations are dependent on corporate reporting, essentially you know, of becoming the leader, becoming well-known, how we link that to a system of accountability for for the other members of the organization. So I think New York York Post is ugly and it's racist, but be it Standing Rock, Occupy, many of the movements of my lifetime, that I think that the ability to be self-critical is always important in political movements and we do need systems of accountability.
0: Donna, I can't- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no. I just won't tell the New York Post. Uh, so I uh, re- really appreciate you being back on this show. And I, I'm, I'm telling you, I want to make certain that we have you on more regularly. You are one of my very favorite guests. And like I said, I just forget that I'm doing an interview. I, it just feels like I'm having a conversation with somebody. And I know that this conversation could go on for another two or three hours about your book because we've only barely touched the content of your book and how incredible it is. And even for activists here in Chicago who are involved with a BYP one I strongly suggest you read Donna's book if you haven't already. This is just one of the most uh, intense and complex and very engaging and enlightening writing I've read in a very long time. So thank you so much for being back on our show. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take good care. Thank you. You too. (sighs) Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is Is hell? I mean, like, I have goosebumps. Like when I talk to Donna Murch, it's really intense. If that conversation with Donna on the struggle for Black liberation was in some way enlightening, it better have been. Made you realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell or go to ThisIsHell.com. And uh, click on support and see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. And right now, we got pretty close to nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. And uh, during my hospitalization, we lost a few uh, Patreon subscribers. And uh, we could really use some more. So please show your support for a completely non-profit in that we cannot afford to be a not-for-profit and just don't make much money. Uh, this Is Hell by going to thisishell.com or by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding.
1: This week's question from hell is, what crimes are you getting away with in the name of national security? I can't believe
0: I quoted New York
1: Post. Yes, yeah, pro figure. brutal. <laughs> That's a pretty good takedown on Donna's part.
0: Though. Yeah, it was.
1: Uh, We have a few more responses. Um, James S. is subscribing to the New York Times.
0: (laughs) At least he didn't say New York Post. Right, (laughs) Right,
1: that would have been perfect. (laughs) Brayden S. says, I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) And finally, Dan K. says, stab in the dark. Cryptic. (laughs) Nice. Yes, very cryptic. Uh,
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Uh, You can leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer. Uh, By the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchard in the moment of truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. And we'll have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week. I believe Lindsey Gore, Gorey will be reading them with us on the show coming up. It's time for Nasty, Gnarly, Nauseous, Naughty, Nerdy, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Globby, Gory This Week in Rotten History. On June 15th, 1968, 54 years ago this week, the great jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery. Amazing, by the way. Woke up at his home in Indianapolis feeling a bit under the weather. Having taught himself to play guitar in his early 20s, he had lived on a at a punishing pace ever since. To support his wife and seven kids, he had for years worked by day as a welder in a factory and then played two or three sets a night in local Indianapolis clubs, where he suffered frequent headaches while soloing and took short naps whenever he could. See what happens when you have seven kids? Back in the late 1940s, Montgomery had toured for two years with Lionel Hampton's orchestra, driving himself from town to town instead of traveling by air. But the rest of the band, uh, with the rest of the band, because he was, well, afraid to fly. But, uh oh, afraid to fly. Getting a little bit worried here. But by the mid-1960s, he had managed to withstand a flight to Europe to perform there and had also toured and recorded while based for a while in California. With all this, he had built a major reputation, and his records and shows had attracted attention and respect at the top of the jazz world. But now Wes Montgomery, who didn't drink but who smoked heavily and had high blood pressure, was back home in Indianapolis. And as he got out of bed in the morning, he told his wife he was not feeling well. A few minutes later... He dropped dead from a heart attack. He was just 45 years old. And here I was thinking it was another story in Rotten History that was going to end with a plane crash. Not that either a plane crash or a heart attack is a fun way to die, and I'm betting that with my luck, if a plane I was traveling in was crashing, I'd probably have a heart attack before it hit the ground. Also this week in Rotten History on June 18, 1943, 79 years ago this week, amid the carnage of World War II, In a village near Kharkiv in Ukraine, Nazi German occupiers executed a 17-year-old, 17-year-old Soviet partisan named Maria Kislyak, along with two of her colleagues, freaking Nazis. And Kislyak, now that's a name that I've heard before, and I cannot stop wondering if she is related to Sergei Kislyak, the former Russian ambassador to the United States who got swept up in the scandal and eventual impeachment of former President Donald Trump concerning Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Maria Kislyak, a trained medical assistant, had worked as a medic and as a spy, helping to move supplies and people across the front lines. Oh my God, can you imagine if... She was the grandchild, or if uh, uh, Sergei Kislyak was the grandchild of a Russian spy, and that's why Vladimir Putin appointed him ambassador to the United States. Now that's something for Rachel Maddow to chew on. Oh, God, I really loathe her show. Uh, Maria Kislyak had also helped to kill two Nazis by pretending to be sexually interested in them. Again, 17 years old, so as to lure them into lethal entrapment. After leading an SS officer onto a bridge where a male colleague of hers was waiting with a crowbar because apparently the Soviets were subtle. Kislyak had been captured and tortured, but then released after the Nazis could extract neither evidence nor a confession. Sometime later, she also led a Gestapo lieutenant into the woods, where two of her associates jumped him, beat some names out of him, and finally clubbed him to death. The subtlety of Soviet interrogation. This time, the Nazis reacted by arresting more than 100 people in the village and threatening to shoot them all unless the true killers revealed themselves. When Kislyak and her two male associates came forward, the Nazis let the other villagers go. Then the Nazis tortured their three Ukrainian prisoners for two weeks. Freaking Nazis. During which time, Kislyak uh, refused to give them any new information. She and the others were finally hanged in public in their bodies. Left dangling on the ropes for a full day. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell?
1: Tomorrow, Wednesday, will be This Is Hell correspondent in Brazil, Brian Meir of Telesur English and Brazil Wire. Brian will be on to talk about his recent article at Brazil Wire. Brazilian army resumes election threats on the possibility of President Jair Bolsonaro using a military coup to stay in power as was reported on the front page of Monday's New York Times. And we'll have an all-new Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin This week, Jeff does some cheap self-care.
0: Oh, sweet. There's nothing better than cheap self-care. That's what my hospital told me to do after I was discharged. Hey, you're all on your own. This is how you're going to take care of yourself from now on. And the best of luck to you. We hope you don't die. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks so much to you, Dan, for producing. I really appreciate it. Dan Hill, today's producer. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996,
2: this is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) Uh, My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.